Let me give you a little story here. It was about three years ago when I joined the team. Uh, the team size was half of what it is today, with less than 30 people. Uh, our game was still in the early development stage, um, trying out new things and explore all the possibilities out there. It was a lot of fun. One day, my boss came along and, hey, uh, we want to make this realistic in-game ecosystem. Would you like to check, take charge on that? And what do you mean by realistic ecosystem, in-game ecosystem? Well, we have this spectacular in-game view, but what we wanted was a lot more than just looking good. Uh, when we plant trees and other vegetations in our game, we don't really do it manually nor randomly. We have this very sophisticated algorithm to determine the location and the type of plants that we are going to place. Uh, the algorithm considers the type of soil, the temperature, the humidity, and other, other surrounding conditions. And we don't really want to put, place banana trees in a snow land or anything like that, right? It sounds all pretty cool, but looking back, I should have been more cautious when I was you know, taking charge on this task. I think I was, a bit, I was a bit too brave. And I think you can be brave when you don't understand, when you don't, any, when you don't know anything about something. For example, if you don't understand what it takes to do car counting in blackjack, you could be like, oh, reinventing Las Vegas. That's great. I'm going to go play blackjack, make a lot of money, and then I'm going to buy a Lamborghini on the way back home. You know, you know that, that kind of bravery. And I was, I was kind of like that. Uh, it was my first time working in the game industry, and I was a much less experienced software engineer at the time. So I didn't really understand what it takes to make a, a production quality game service. So I was like, okay, it sounds, it sounds like a cool thing to work on without really thinking about what kind of challenges and difficulties it, in, it entails. At the beginning, I only thought about the algorithm itself, not the entire service architecture. Uh, taking charge on this task pushed me to contemplate far beyond the scope of uh, the challenges of writing a single standalone program that runs fast and correctly. I had to think about the scalability and the reliability of the uh, whole system. It wasn't easy for me, but I'm pretty sure it, it would have been much more difficult without the help of Amazon Web Services. Hello, and welcome to uh, Automating Mother Nature session. My name is Sumin, and today I'm going to talk about how Durango's in-game ecosystem works and how I built the infrastructure structure with Amazon Web Services to automatically maintain them. So before getting started, let me give you a, a brief self-introduction. I'm a software engineer at Nexon, and Nexon is a multinational game company headquartered in South Korea. We specialize in online games for PC and mobile, and we service over more than 100 game titles in over 190 countries. <coughs> Some of the internationally famous titles include MapleStory, The Combat Arms, Sudden Attack, and more. Well, Nexon is an interesting company in a sense that it's like a federation of individual game studios. Each studio is responsible for one game title. 
And its size ranges from a few people to a few hundred people. And each studio is unique in some way. Each, each of us has a unique culture and unique environment. We even have a different lunch uh, time and office hours and things like that. So even though I'm working for a relatively large company, it kind of feels like I'm working for a, for a startup. The only minor difference is that we have unlimited amount of cash to spend on AWS. Um, so we have been, I'm sorry, what was it? Let, let me talk about it later. <laughs> we have been working on this game called Durango for many years. It's scheduled to be released next year. I, I think it'd be better to show you a short video instead of uh, me verbally talk, uh, explaining what the game is about. When I was a kid, I always dreamed of seeing dinosaurs. Even just a little one. Guess I should have dreamed bigger. So Durango is an open-world MMORPG in the world of dinosaurs. Since this is an AWS conference, not a game conference, I'll try to be focused on AWS topics as much as possible. And there are a few Durango-specific concepts and knowledge, but I will explain them as we go. So this was one of the most important, important goals in our mind. We wanted to make our in-game ecosystem as realistic as possible. So what do you mean by realistic? Well, just like the real world, the forest will be destroyed by people due to logging, cultivation, and building something, and other activities. But if you leave a certain area untouched for long enough, the mother nature will do its magic to slowly re replenish uh, the destroyed forest. If we fast forward the process, it'll look like this. So we initially have an empty land here, but it'll be replenished by small species like, like weeds. 
followed by shrubs and other mid-sized species. And then finally, big trees. This all sounds great, but we have no idea on how to do this at the beginning. So one day, one of our game designers went to a local library to check out a bunch of books to study ecology. After a couple of weeks, he came up with a, with a series of rules to plant trees and other vegetation. In fact, his field of study in his graduate school career was uh, geology and paleontology, the stu study of fossil. So I don't think I could come up with these rules by just simply reading those books. It was his unique skill. Based on the rules he came up with, we developed a program called Ecosystem Simulator to determine what kind of plants we should put in a certain place. We're going to call the Ecosystem Simulator as an eco simulator for, for brevity in this talk. So why don't we plant trees manually? Well, that's because of the sheer scale of the game world. We have over 10,000 islands, and there are over 2 billion potential spots where you can place something. And that's not all. Uh, the, the islands are being created as more, more players join our game. So it's not really an attainable goal to do this manually. OK, now we understand why it is not a good idea to handcraft our game world. But what, why do we need a separate program for this? Why couldn't we just let the game server handle this? Well, the eco-simulator eco performs, performs a lot of matrix operations and other calculations, so much that it cannot be handled by a single computer. So we had to employ multiple compute nodes. On the top of that, we wanted to make the eco-simulator scale independently from the rest of the game server. And this is how the simulator works in, with the game server. The game server generates the current garden state. And given the garden state, the simulator plants all the uh, trees and other things to determine the next garden state. Then the game server applies the, that, the garden state back to the database. A garden state is just a document in the database describing which plant is on which tile. And a tile is a single cell describing the screenshot. A tile is a basic unit for object placement. And this is an overview of the architecture we have settled on. This may not be obvious at the first glance, but I will dive into each component and explain what kind of technical problems we faced and how we came up with the plausible solutions. In our production environment, we're going to have multiple machines running the simulator in parallel. That means whenever we deploy our code to a new machine, we want it to, we want it to work every single time. But sometimes the soft, software deployment can be tricky, as it's not always straightforward to provide the identical runtime environment for all deployments. In essence, we need a solid base system that every eco-simulator deployment can rely on. And our solution was Docker. It provides an, an, an isolated runtime environment for your code. You can, you can package, your, package things like libraries and frameworks, 
that your code needs as a single and self-sufficient self container. AWS provides a highly scalable, high-performance container management service called uh, ECS. It does all the heavy lifting for you, so you, you don't have to concern yourself with uh, container deployment and cluster configuration and other complicated stuff. Although it's a fully managed service, you still have to provision the underlying compute resources like EC2. Suppose we've, we've got our ECS cluster ready, and we're going to pull a Docker image from the repository to run it on ECS. Now, ECR is a fully managed Docker container registry, like a Docker hub. Well, there's actually a behind-the-scenes behind the story that I, that I, I like to share with you. I initially thought the ECR must be in the same region as the ECS, but that was not true. Anyway, that's what I thought, and our game servers are mostly in Tokyo region, whereas the ECS cluster was set up in Virginia. Because at the time we started working on this project, the ECR was only available in Virginia. Coincidentally, the EC2 pricing in Virginia was about 22% lower than that of, in, of Tokyo on average. Given our monthly usage and the type of instances we use, uh, this, this is how much we would have saved. That's about 20% or $1,800 of cost reduction. Well, that may not sound so significant in terms of dollar amount, but remember this was only for beta testing. In a larger scale, that 20% saving would translate into a much more satisfactory result. In addition, we took this cost-saving measure even further. We employ spot instances rather than on-demand instances in our, for our ECS cluster. We're going to talk about it at, at the end of this talk. However, if you think about it carefully, the inter-regional data transfer can be quite expensive. So if you have money to transfer one petabyte, you can probably buy two BMWs. So even if you could save some money by offloading your computation to a different region, if you transfer a large quantity of data to get the result back, you may end up spending even more money on the data transfer charges than what you saved on the, in computation. So you want to be careful about this. It's estimated that we transferred about three and a half terabytes between those two regions in September for beta testing. And that translates into no more than $200 in data transfer charges. But it was only estimation. So I decided to take a bit, I decided to look into a bit closer in the AWS billing console. The data transfer charge for, for the Virginia region was less than $10. Well, I'm sorry, it was about $11. And I think that's how much I spent at McDonald's last night at the airport. Oh, looking good so far. And, but then I found something unexpected. It turned out that we transferred over 111 terabytes, which is uh, 32 times more than what we anticipated. Well, it may not seem so much still, but 
remember this is only for beta testing, and you know these damages could be even worse if if the service was officially launched. My boss still doesn't know about this, and but he's gonna find out because he's gonna be watching this online. But that's okay. I'm gonna be on my personal vacation after this conference for two weeks, so. By the time I get back to work, either he's going to be forget about it or my desk will be gone. <laughs> a few months ago, one of our DevOps engineers decided to move our ECR to Tokyo for easier management. As he, he was organizing our AWS uh, resources with a Terraform. So I suspected that Transferring Docker image from the ECR to ECS was incurring this insanity. Then I thought about it again and came to a conclusion that we would have had transferred the, the Docker image over 100,000 times. Even if, you're, you're, even if you're running multiple ECS agents, that's unrealistic. So I kept searching for the real reason. And the real problem was that we're serving our game terrain files from in, in S3 in Tokyo. The eco simulator was pulling files over three terabytes per day on average. Given the number of players participating in the beta program, it was a bit too much. To solve this problem, we could either move the ECS cluster to Tokyo or have an exact copy of the S3 bucket in Virginia. We decided to go, to go with the latter. So instead of serving terrain files from Tokyo, we, we may set up a, a replica in Virginia and pull terrain files from there. This way, we only transfer data, data, we only transfer data between these two regions once, and then containers on the ECS cluster pull files from the replica in Virginia, which is uh, free of a charge. Okay, let's go back to our engineering problem instead of uh, worrying about the cost too much. Well, we have, we have an ECS cluster ready, but the tasks don't run by themselves, so something has to trigger them. Our game has this philosophy, no audience, no play. Meaning, if there is no observer, then we don't do anything. For example, we've got this state machine-based animal AI that regulates animals' behaviors. But they don't do anything unless someone is looking at them. That way, we don't waste our precious CPU, CPU power. The same story goes with our eco-simulator. If no one is wandering around in, our, uh, in a particular area of an island, then the simulator doesn't run on that particular area. Well, that's because we have a large number of islands and the simulator has, simulator has to cover an extensive area. There's no way that the simulator runs on everywhere because it'll just take too long. So we, we run the simulator based on the player activities. Whenever a player steps into a small area called a chunk, it'll trigger the eco-simulator to run on that particular chunk. Well, 
But if we do that every time someone steps, in a, steps into a new chunk, it, it'll call the simulator too many times. So we do a random sampling here to control the rate in which we send the replenish request to the ECS. So what I mean by chunk is just a pack of uh, 16 by 16 tiles. A chunk is a basic unit for a workload. For example, our game server loads terrain data by chunk. And the eco simulator does its job in a chunk basis. So by dividing up a large island in, into a small chunks like this, we can process any task in parallel. Um, and most importantly, we can, we can finish the task in a fixed amount of time as long as we provide the enough computing power and the tasks don't depend on each other. Since we run the simulator on ECS, making a replenish request essentially means running an ECS task, which is uh, pretty simple. In, all, in almost all popular languages, there's an AWS API bindings that you can use. Now the game server can invoke an ECS task, but we've got a potential problem here. Player activity is something we can hardly predict accurately. Sometimes a lot of players move around and destroy the forest, and other times not many players are around. So we have provisioned a certain number of ECS agents, which determines the compute capacity. And when we go over the limit, then we're going to have some, I mean, it, it won't be able to run any additional tasks, which means we're going to have some missing tasks. Then that translates into unreplenished empty spots in our game land. So this is what happens when we fail to replenish our lands. Players will complain about resource shortage. To alleviate this problem, we brought the SQS into the picture as to act, act, to act as a buffer between the producer and the consumer. Here, the producer is a game server, and the consumer is the ECS cluster. So instead of having the game server directly call, I mean, directly invoke an ECS task, it inserts a, a request message in the queue. And a Lambda function processes it later on. We need a Lambda because SQS cannot invoke an ECS task by itself. So what is SQS and how does it help us? Well, SQS is a fully managed messaging queue service for reliable, reliable communication between distributed software components and microservices. It makes it simple to decouple application components, allowing us to build fault-tolerant and scalable systems. One thing I find interesting is that it, it supports optional server-side encryption. I mean, in, in our case, it's not our best interest to conceal where we plant trees, so we didn't put too much effort into this, but I would imagine it can be useful in finance and healthcare industries where you want to deal with confidential data. Oh, there are two types of queues in SQS, the standard queue and the FIFO queue. And delivering messages exactly once and in order are two major challenges in any distributed system. 
and SQS reflects these characteristics really well. You can choose one of these two types of queues depending on your needs. If you need to guarantee exactly once and in-order delivery at the cost of limited throughput, then the FIFO queue is a good option for you. In our case, the exactly one semantics is a relatively, relatively less of concern, and the throughput was a lot more important. So we decided to go with a standard queue. To make a side note, those problems can be seen as a mathematical problem rather than a software engineering problem. So if your operations are communicative, then out-of-order messages in SQS won't affect the final outcome. Likewise, if your operations are idempotent, the duplicated messages won't cause any damage. The replenish operations are executed in a chunk basis, so in order, so the order in which they are carried out doesn't really matter. And the replenish algorithm is designed in a way that the marginal difference after each iteration asymptotically approaches to zero. It's, it sounds like a bad word, but this, well, this isn't exactly a pure idempotent function in a mathematical sense, but in practice, executing the replenish operations twice instead of once uh, produces an acceptable outcome. It, it looks good enough. And in SQS, the message duplication is an exceptional case, not an average case. So we decided to not to worry about it too much. So the standard queue was a, a more reasonable option for us. By introducing the SQS in between the game server and the ECS cluster, we solved the problem of the producer and consumer speed mismatch. The overflowing messages can stay in the queue until the ECS ca catches up. No more empty spots in the game world, and this is great. But what do we do with the Lambda? How do we trigger it to run an ECS task? Well, Lambda is a serverless compute service that runs your code without provisioning underlying compute resources like EC2. And a Lambda can be invoked uh, by, uh, can be either directly invoked through an API call or by an event source. And here's a full list of Lambda event sources, but unfortunately, the SQS is not listed here, which means we cannot trigger a Lambda by simply sending a message to a queue. Then how do you trigger Lambda when a message is queued? Well, there are two potential solutions I could think of. Think of. Solution one, have a CloudWatch cron task that runs every minute and have a Lambda that pulls messages from the, the SQS. This may not be the most elegant way, but it works. Solution two, have, an, have a CloudWatch alarm on approximate number of messages visible property. So if there's any visible message in the queue, it'll publish an SNS topic that triggers a Lambda. The SNS, or Simple Notification Service, is a fully managed pop-up messaging and notifications service. In our solution two, the CloudWatch publishes a message to a certain channel 
where the lambda is subscribed to. When we invoke an ACS task, we need to pass some metadata. The metadata is a collection of uh, the game-specific information, such as properties of natural objects, the point of interest, and terrain, spe terrain specifications, and things like that. Also, we also need to pass the garden state describing where the plants are located. When we try to pass those to SQS, things don't really work out because the maximum message size in SQS is 256 kilobytes. And sometimes the total size of the metadata and the garden state exceeds this limit. Our solution was to use S3 as a temporary storage. Replenish requests go into the queue, but all the parameters like the garden state and the metadata go into the S3 bucket. After this, we found another, another problem. We didn't have any mechanism to delete uh, these unused old objects from S3. The storage is pretty cheap, but we cannot go on like this forever. Well, there's an easy solution for this, which is called S3 lifecycle management. It moves or deletes objects based on the rules you defined. Since we're using S3 as a temporary storage, we set up our bucket to delete any object that is older than a day. After setting up the object expiration policy, we have seen a, a definite improvement in our storage usage, dropping from 1.8 terabytes to 200 gigabytes. While saving that much space may not be significant in terms of dollars, but the important fact here is that we changed a linear growth into, the, into a flat line. Another optimization we could do with, with S3 is to move infrequently accessed objects, like, uh, like terrain files or, or old log files, to a lower storage class, such as S3, infrequent access, or Glacier. Okay, well, it seems like we have taken care of all the issues to run the eco-simulator on our ECS cluster. Now, let's talk about how to get the result back from the simulator. Once the simulator completes its assignment, it'll have a final garden state to be applied back to the game server. Well, we need some, some kind of callback mechanism to get the result back. Initially, we had an HTTP endpoint on the game server. So the simulator can upload the result by making an HTTP POST request. But one of the hurdle, hurdles was that our game servers and the ECS cluster were in different regions, thus belonging, into, belonging to different VPCs. So we had to set up a virtual private network to let them communicate because we didn't want to publicly expose an HTTP endpoint on the game server. As far as the functionality is concerned, it, it works fine, but 
it, it, it imposed a great challenge for us. Having an HTTP endpoint makes it difficult to set up our development and testing environments, especially for those non-technical people. Well, our game server runs on Linux, whereas the, most of our team members use Windows. So if you want to run the game server locally, you're gonna have to have a, a virtual machine set up on, on your uh, host machine, then set up a, uh, a series of port forwarding rules, and you're gonna have to submit a request to the IT department to open up a port, and to do that, you're gonna have to get an approval from your manager, it's just a lot of hassle. And another issue here is that we have a potential single point of failure. We had to build our own EC2 instance with OpenSwan installed on in order to set up a VPN. Well, that could be potentially be an SPOF. Once that instance goes down, then the, the, the destroyed forest will no longer be replenished. And that means angry players. And for me, that's uh, working over time to fix this. So this is the alter uh, alternative that we came up with. We send those parameters through SQS and S3 when we make a request. So why don't we send the result back through them as well? So instead of uh, having the eco simulator directly call on HTTP endpoint on the game server, we made the game server periodically pull messages from SQS that contain the metadata and the key to the garden, garden state stored in S3. See, the, uh, the SQS completely eliminated the need for direct communication between the game server and the ECS cluster. In other words, we don't, we don't need a VPN and, and the external HTTP endpoint anymore. So by introducing reliable communication like SQS between, the, between application components, each component can operate, scale, and fail independently from each other. Not to mention that we also eliminated uh, potential SPOF. Then we noticed a, there's an inconsistency in the request and the response path, path here. So we decided to get rid of Lambda and let the game server handle the requests as well. Less components, less chance of failure. Okay, let's switch gears and move on to different topic. Imagine how the world was like when Amazon was just a forest. There was no AWS, no concept of cloud computing. You would probably have to rent servers from a, a hosting provider or have your own on-premise uh, servers. Either way, you're gonna have to have some idea on how much resource you need. It's not impossible, but it's not easy to scale in and out according to your needs. Uh, then the AWS, AWS came along and the EC2 made it so much easier to cope with your constantly changing demands for computing resources. It's a matter of clicking a few buttons or calling an API to turn on and off instances. 
However, even with this tremendous convenience, you still have to know how much resource you need. Wouldn't it be great if, if some magic happens and EC2 instances are, are launched when you need more? That's where the auto-scaling comes into play. Auto-scaling lets you build systems that respond to changes in demand. It launches or terminates AWS resources based on the rules you define. In our case, we set up some rules so that it launches more EC2 instances when the overall CPU utilization exceeds 80% for 60 seconds, and it terminates some instances where, when the CPU utilization falls below 50% for five minutes. Well, we didn't really come up with uh, any mathematical model to determine those parameters. We just uh, heuristically came up with these values. That's something we're hoping to improve later on. As a result, we were able to maximize the utility of our EC2 agents. If the CPU usage is, is almost, always almost to full, that means you don't have much room to deal with the spikes in demands. And the CPU usage is too low, that means you're, you're wasting your money. So we really want to stay in this sweet spot, so to speak. Note that the number of EC2 agents is, is, it keeps changing as depicted in the green line. This not only provides a better user experience, but it also saves us cost. So we decided to take the cost reduction even further. Remember I mentioned about spot instances in, uh, in earlier? Well, one thing I find amusing is that at the beginning of this talk, I said we have a lot of money to spend on AWS, but I always end up talking about how to save money, no matter what I do here. Well, just to give you an excuse, I was a grad student until about four years ago, and I have many years of working in an early stage startup. So saving cost is crucial for survival, and that's built into my DNA. Anyway, the spot instances are spare EC2 instances that you can bid on. You can set the maximum bid on a particular instance type. It's a great way to save cost for tasks that are time flexible and tolerant to interruptions. If your task suddenly gets terminated due to spot instance price change, your software architecture should be able to handle that by retrying the task when the instance com comes back online. It may not be suitable for all systems, however, and I wouldn't use it for mission-critical systems. In fact, we use a combination of on-demand and spot instances for our ECS cluster, because bidding high enough cannot guarantee that instances are never terminated. And we would like to have, have some steady base underline for our, for under all circumstances. This is how much we saved by employing spot instances when compared to on-demand instances. That's about 78% of saving. Again, you know, in, in a larger scale, we would have seen much more satisfactory result in terms of the dollar amount. And reserved instance is, 
reserved instances are another good way to save cost. By locking yourself into a either one-year or three-year contract, you get a discounted rate up to 60% compared, compared to on-demand instances. And remember I mentioned about we, have a, we want to have a baseline ECS agent? That's where we could use some reserved instances because we know we're gonna have some, we're gonna have a certain number of machines running for a very long time. I think I tried to push too much information to you guys in a sh such a short time. And so let's go, let's briefly go over what I have talked about so far. The ECS makes our job much easier by providing a fully managed service for container deployment and scheduling and monitoring. It also handles cluster configuration and management and other complicated stuff, allowing us to focus on our business logic. And you can set up the auto-scaling for your ECS cluster so that it regulates the number of instances according to your rules. The one minor inconvenience, in my opinion, is that we still have to provision underlying compute resources for ECS. One thing I was really hoping for was a system where I can go and launch uh, Docker containers without worrying about underlying compute resources and get built by CPU and memory usage, just like a Lambda. And I'm pretty sure there's a reason for this. Perhaps it's a security concern. Maybe you could do a jailbreaking with the Docker or something like that. But I don't know what the real, real story is. Maybe, I will, I'll, maybe I'll, I will be able to find out what the reason is in this conference by talking to AWS people. And we discussed that the SQS can act as a buffer between the producer and the consumer, decoupling application components, making them fault-tolerant and highly scalable. The SQS can be extremely useful when you, have, when you have application components in different VPCs. It allows your application components communicate without establishing direct communications. We learned that there are two types of queues, and if exact semantics is important, go with a FIFO queue. Otherwise, go, go with the standard queue. But if you could make your operations communicative and idempotent, you, you will eventually converge it to a correct result, even if your messages are, messages are out of order or duplicated. And S3 is a, is a good, good place to store relatively large objects that cannot be stored in SQS and object lifecycle rules that can be set up. So, so I'm sorry. Okay, you can, you can set the object lifecycle rules so that infrequently accessed objects are moved into a different class storage or even deleted. We, we also learned that it's important to keep the object within the same region as compute resources for minimal latency and to prevent inter-regional data transfer charges. And Lambda allows you to focus on your code, nothing else. 
It's a true liberation, especially if you have a small engineering team. And, and if you don't want to dive into the world of AWS in order to create this architectural masterpiece. And even if you have a big engineering team, Lambda can be still useful. We actually use Lambda act actively in other parts of, in our, of our game server, like processing log files and things like that. It's kind of unfortunate to drop Lambda for this particular project, but we had a good reason for that. We, we chose to do that in order to make things a bit more consistent with, uh, with, within our architecture. Uh, we also looked at few measures to reduce down the cost, like auto-scaling and spot instances and reserved instances. And always remember that the network is the most precious resource that you want to conserve, even at the cost of using other types of resources like a compute or storage. It's the best case scenario if you could do everything within the same region. It's free to transfer data within the region. But if you have to transfer data between different regions, uh, maybe you want to employ some kind of compression when transferring data. That's like uh, using compute resources to save network. Or maybe you want to replicate the entire S3 bucket on each region that you're going to pull the data from. And that's like, that's like using storage to save, save network. Okay, that's all I have for today. And thanks for joining this session. And I hope to see you all next year. And enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you very much.